This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. So chapter 14, very, very different from chapter 13. Chapter 13 was long, 58 verses and absolutely packed from one end to the other with a series of parables that we covered in some real depth. And then we got into chapter 14 last week and find very few red letters in them. But what did we say early on in our red letter studies? Within our first three or four red letter studies, I think we discovered that you can't really teach on the teachings of Christ without also teaching on his life. Because teachings, his teachings, go far deeper than the mere words that he spoke. And they extended on into the very real compassion that he felt for other people. It wasn't just social justice compassion. It wasn't just uh, politically agendaed compassion, if I can make a verb out of that word. But this was the real thing. This wasn't a mask. It wasn't false. He had genuine compassion for people that were in dire straits, that were facing multitudes or, a, 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 let me say, a wide variety of very real challenges. And a lot of those challenges in Jesus's time were far more serious than they are today. Far more serious than they are today, just because of uh, the lack of progress or wherever they were at the stage of their development. But in chapter 14, we find a lot of these, let's call them exemplary lessons, okay? Or lessons that are by way of Jesus' example, far more so than in just his words. There are uh, probably only three or four verses or even parts of verses in this chapter that are him saying anything at all. And we started with one last week and we're going to go over it again. Chapter 14, verse 1 begins, well, actually verses 1 through 12. They show us, they present us with the death of John the Baptist and the conclusion of John the Baptist's ministry or his place in the grander ministry, the master plan of God. It shows us the death of John the Baptist and the end of his ministry. And as it reads from verse 1, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch, who was sort of like a king without the title of king, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus and said unto his servants, this is John the Baptist, he is risen from the dead. And therefore, mighty works do show forth themselves in him. And we covered that last week that this was Herod's fear and guilty conscience trying to get him to believe that John the Baptist had come back from the dead. And that is not at all what had happened. And then in verse 3 through verse 12 gives us the backstory of how John had died. John had spoken up against Herod and what Herod was doing. He was involved in an adulterous relationship, a very weird adulterous relationship at that. And John, standing up for what was right, standing up for the truth, being a preacher of righteousness that he was, uh, in whatever capacity he had been ordained to as a prophet and far more than a prophet, he stood up against this and said, you're wrong for doing this, Herod. And so Herod and the women that he was involved with, you could say, in one way or another, they really didn't like that because wicked people in powerful places don't like being called out. Well, nobody really likes being called out. But the powerful 
act on that. The powerful act on that. And those who have the ears of the powerful act on that also. And so as we go through, just read this very quickly. Herod had laid hold on John, verse 3, bound him, put him in prison for Herodias' sake, or Herodias' sake, I'm not sure how you pronounce that. And that who was, Her- who was Herodias? Well, that was his brother Philip's wife. So he was messing around, not just with another man's wife, he was messing around with his own brother's wife. That's just kind of gross. That's why you hear me say weird. It was a weird adulterous relationship. And so... For John had said unto him, it's not lawful for thee to have her. And when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. So Herod knew how to be a politician. He knew when to hold him and when to fold him. And when it came to John the Baptist, he sort of held his hand and said, all right, well, I'm not going to put this guy to death because too many people in Israel view him as a prophet. And I just really don't need an uprising or an insurrection on my hands because then Caesar might have my head because that's how it worked a lot of times in those days. Those in positions of political power faced far worse than mere impeachment and a slap on the wrist if they managed things poorly. They might find themselves losing their head and then someone else taking not only their office and their position and their power, but their wife and their children and concubines as well. So there was a lot on the line here. I don't throw too many stones at Herod, just a few. All right, let's move on. So he would have put him to death, but he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Ariadus danced before them and pleased Herod. Whereupon he promised with an oath, because that's what stupid men do in bad relationships, is they make promises that they shouldn't, okay? He had promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. And she, being before instructed of her mother, said, give me here John Baptist's head and a charger. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, for the oath's sake, And them which sat with him at meat that heard the oath. It doesn't say that there, but they that sat with him would have heard him make that promise. It wasn't even so much because he promised, but because too many people heard him make the promise and would have held him to it. So for the oath's sake, and them which sat sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given her. And so he sent and beheaded John in the prison, and his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came, took up the body, buried it, and went and told Jesus. So all of that's backstory for a two-verse lesson, which is a tremendous lesson. And that is, and this is where we left off last week. Let's read verses 13 and 14. When Jesus heard it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. Now, again, you're just blasting across these verses at 100 miles an hour to get in your daily Bible reading. You don't pick up on what the lesson is here. And so it's one reason why we come for Bible studies. The lesson of verses 13 and 14 is that the ministry and the needs of the ministry don't stop for anyone. And they don't stop for anything. Because there will always be people in need of the gospel, in need of the gifts and the promises of God. There are always people in need. There will always be the lost in need of salvation. There will always be the sick in need of either healing or prayer or both. There will always be uh, those that are in battles that need counsel. There will always be 
the sheep of the Lord's pasture, of whom we are all, there will always be the sheep of the Lord's pasture that need to be fed. And so, what happened? Well, let's read it. Jesus heard of it. So Jesus heard of the death of his dear friend. Jesus heard of the death of John the Baptist, whose entire ministry was as a harbinger of Jesus' own coming. And what did he do? Well, he had to go on retreat for five weeks. Well, no. Well, he, uh, he, left, he left the entire work of the Father to go and hold a funeral. Well, no. No, he didn't do that. And he certainly didn't go back to Jerusalem to resurrect John because John's time was done. And it was frankly, however gruesome it may have been, it was a glorious end to a righteous ministry. It really was. What more glorious way is there to go? I'm not saying that I'm looking for it or even promoting it, but what better way or what more glorious ways? Lots of easier ways, lots of more comfortable ways, but what more glorious way to go than to have your head taken off your shoulders because you stood for what was right. You stood up for the truth and you didn't back down when bullied by the government or anybody else for that matter. And that's a very timely lesson. Uh, to be gleaned from these two verses. John died because he stood for what was right and he would not back down. Period. End of story. And so what, what did Jesus do? Well, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. It doesn't say why, but it's not a, it's not a great leap to, to deduce that it was probably to get some time alone away from the crowd and talk to God because that's one of the best things that you can do when you are dealt a serious blow in your life. A shocking blow, something happens and it rocks you back on your heels or even possibly shakes your foundation. What do you need to do? Get away from folks. I don't mean get away from the house of God. Don't get away from church services and things like that. But you get away from the busyness and the demands of life, if possible, and get alone with God and talk to God about it instead of your neighbor or instead of that family member, instead of gossiping and pouring it into someone's ears and destroying someone else's reputation. Instead of doing these things, you go and you talk to God. But... This is where verse 13 goes on. When the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them and he healed their sick. Well, I mean, that really speaks for itself. Even though Jesus had a personal need that he really needed to attend to, I need to get alone for a little bit. John's gone. You don't, think that not, you don't think that anything would rattle Jesus. You don't think that anything would grieve Jesus. But there were things that grieved him. Jesus was alive and was human and was in the world. And he was doing what his Father in heaven had sent him to do. And he didn't necessarily want John to die an ignominious death in a prison. Especially when he had done something that was right. And so it had affected him. And we read elsewhere in scriptures, I think earlier, uh, uh, elsewhere in scripture, I think we've already covered it, we may not have, uh, about the death of Lazarus and how Jesus wept. And it wasn't because of the death of Lazarus. He wept because the people that were around him were demonstrating all the faith of a brick. They had none at all, did not have any vision beyond the immediate catastrophe or the immediate um, uh, emergency or tragedy. That's the word that I'm looking for. And so here, Jesus, moved by the death of John, 
went out to attend to his own heart, but there were other people that needed ministering more. There's the lesson. The work of our Lord couldn't take a vacation. He couldn't take a vacation. The needs of these others was far greater. And so he, he being moved with compassion, he healed their sick. And then now verse 15 carries it on here. It says, and when it, it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a desert place and the time is now past. Send the multitude away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals. What's that? Well, groceries, basically. Let them go. Let them go into the town so they can get something to eat, Jesus. But Jesus said unto them, they need not depart. Give ye them to eat. And I can picture the, the, the disciples' faces just kind of stumped, you know, like, what? What do you, what do you mean? There's like thousands of people here, and we'll talk about that in a second. There's thousands of people here. What in the world are we going to give them, you know? And it's a desert place, you know? We're not going to start pulling up grass or picking leaves off of trees and start chewing on that, Jesus. What are you talking about? He said, they need not depart. Give ye them to eat. And when they say unto him, we have here but five loaves and two fishes, he said, bring them hither to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass. So I guess there was grass. Sorry, it's a desert place, but I guess it had some grass. He commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass and took the five loaves and the two fishes and looked up to heaven and blessed and break and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to, uh, and the disciples to the multitude. And I'm going to hit the brakes right here. Because the same lesson is coming up again as was in 13 and 14. Look at the progression of this. He said, bring them hither to me. Verse 18. Verse 19, he said, he commanded the multitude to sit down in the grass. And he, Jesus took the five loaves and the fishes that the disciples had, what they brought to him. Jesus took it, blessed it, prepared it, gave it to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. Do you see how it goes? The Lord gives it to the ministers and then the ministers minister it to the people. The Lord gives it to the ministers and the ministers minister it to the people. They deliver it to the people. And so we find that that that's so poorly defined these days, that role of minister taking on again that role of a servant. And that is the same theme that keeps recurring. And I think that was, was that last Thursday night about, uh, or was it last Sunday morning? It might have been two Sunday mornings ago about to be a servant of God. And, and, and well, on Wednesday it was to be, or on Thursday, last Thursday night, it was about uh, having the mind of Christ, I believe. And so, and this constant theme of service keeps coming up in those messages and in the scripture references. And that was not by my design, I assure you. And here it is again. Right here in the natural course of our Bible study, unplanned, but God knows. Verses 13 and 14, service. Jesus went forth, saw the multitude, moved with compassion, healed their sick. And here, He tells His disciples, the people don't need to leave. They don't need to go into the towns to find something to eat. You guys feed them. That's what He was telling His disciples. You guys feed them. So what do you have to work with? All right, well, we got some loaves and fishes. All right, bring it to me, says the Lord. I'm going to touch it. I'm going to bless it. I'm going to prepare it. And I'm going to miraculously 
multiply. Now we focus so much on the physical miracle of him causing these loaves and fishes to be miraculously multiplied so that it fed multiple thousands of people. But it goes deeper than that. The lesson goes deeper than that. What you have for others, God can bless and multiply, whether it's uh, the word that you have to speak to them, whether it's, my goodness, dare I say this, financial resources. If you've ever blessed somebody with an offering, when money was tight, even for yourself, and you weren't sure how you were going to get gas in your tank, but you took the words of Christ seriously when he said, you know, when, if someone uh, seeks to borrow from you, he says, don't refuse them. Now, he doesn't say give them everything they want, okay? <laughs> he doesn't say enable them if it's going to go into a syringe and go into their arm. He's not saying that. He just says, you know, expecting nothing in return, be free to lend. And so you did that even when you were in a tight spot. And, but you did that anyway because you wanted to please the Lord. And so you put a fiver in their hand and put your other last fiver in your gas stick or however you did it. And then somehow God moved and put extra money in your lap or your bank account. And I've seen that sort of thing happen again and again. So whether it's time, whether it's resources, whether it's money, I've seen God do miracles with money before. Whether it's that or whether it's whatever it may be that you have, when it's for someone else a lot of times, Jesus will do the same thing. He'll touch it. He'll bless it. He'll multiply it. And you'll end up with more than you even... You'll, you'll end up with, with more than when you even started. I've seen it happen. And that is a constant, or I would say, maybe not constant, because that makes it sound like it's happening all the time. And maybe it is in other places and with other people when you, when you look at it from a global perspective. But it happens frequently when a believer stands on God's promises and does what we know to do. We do what we know to do. We do, we do what we know is right. So he blessed and break and gave the loaves to his disciples and his disciples to the multitude from the Lord to the minister. And the minister is a servant because those ministers, they weren't out there in the grass with the people sitting down expecting. They were on the delivering end of things. So they took that bread out to the multitude, put it in their hands. The bread, the fish, they put it in their hands. And verse 20, and they did all eat and were filled. And they took up the fragments that remained, 12 baskets full. All right, so talk to me, science devotees. Tell me how that's possible. All right, I understand. You know the the uh, the the, uh, the scientism believer. I think that's actually a word that's recently been coined by somebody out there that refers to you know people that believe in only science and there's nothing else outside of that. That's like the one true religion in their minds. Okay, so explain that. This was not a parable. This is a matter of historical record. They had five loaves. And what did he say? Two fishes. Five loaves of bread. You know what? Let's even, let's be generous with this. Let's say that they were big old long novelty party loaves like they use in submarine shops for catering events. Let's, let's say these things are six feet long, okay? So five times six. Help me out. 30? 
30 feet of bread and two, let's even say they were two great big Japanese tuna. We know they weren't, but let's just say that they were because those are massive fish or a couple of swordfish. There you go. And they broke them all up and put them in a laundry basket. There you go. How about that? So let's just make these as big as they possibly can be. There's no way that it would have fed. Let's see. And they had eaten. They that had eaten were about 5,000 men beside women and children. 5,000 men. 5,000 adult men. Let's say that they were all married. That's 10,000, but high infant mortality, so maybe a lot less. So let's say half that. So 5,000 men, maybe half again as many women. And they didn't even mention single women, so let's 7,500, let's say 8,000. Let's say, let's say 5,000 men, 3,000 women, and who in the world knows how many kids? So there could have been as many as 10,000 people there fed from five loaves of bread and two fishes. That's called a miracle. That's called a miracle. That's the explanation. Let the doubters doubt. Fine, doubt, doubt away. That's their problem, not yours. That's their problem. Let that be their problem. Pray for their deliverance from that doubt because doubt, uh, doubt's one of those stones of resistance. It's a very big, very hard stone of resistance buried in the garden of many people's hearts. But here it was. And they did all eat and were filled and they took up of the fragments that remained 12 baskets full. And they that had eaten were about 5,000 men beside women and children. And how was that possible? Because the Lord did His job and the ministers did their job. The Lord did His job and His disciples did their job. And nearly 10,000 people got fed. It's amazing what can happen when we do what we're supposed to do. It's amazing. And frankly, the people stayed. They didn't leave and go into town. They didn't go and leave and go into town to find groceries there. They obeyed when the Lord said, let them stay. They don't have to leave. Okay, let's move on. Verse 22. And straightway, Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitude away. So he dismissed his disciples to travel over to the other side of a body of water while he, Jesus, remained behind to dismiss the people. Verse 23, and when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. So once he had met the needs of those that needed, then he had time to get alone with God, spend that time with God, replenish his own spirit, replenish his own soul, get his own spiritual batteries, physical batteries too, because the ministry's work, man. It really is. It is work. And it demands sacrifice and it demands commitment and it demands focus and it is not for the weak. And it goes so far above and beyond mere titles and honors and being called sir or having a, a title stuck to your name or anything like that. It goes all the way past that right into the bloody ditches of labor where people are at and are bleeding and are hurting. And I'm talking about from the heart and from the soul. It is not for the weak. And that is why it is a positive calling and not some mere profession. I'm not taking away from professions, okay? But it is, a, it is way past that. It is a life that knows no time clock and it knows no quitting time. And it is on call 24-7. And it really is. And so 
But when the time is right and in God's time, then even the minister gets his rest. He really does. So as we read it here, and this is, this is not a, a far leap at all. Straightway, Jesus constrained his disciples, go into a ship, go to the other side, I'll meet you there. I'm going to send the multitude away. And when he had sent the multitude away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. And then we move on to the next part. And this is the other part that we, we love reading about this because this is so cool. And when the ship was now in the midst of the sea, okay, so if it was a TV show, you get the cut scene and now uh, Jesus, we leave Jesus there on the mountain or in, uh, alone in that place where he's praying and getting his batteries recharged and we cut to the guys in the ship out in the midst of the sea. And so when the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary and in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. So here's his disciples in a boat, just doing what they were told, trying to cross the waters, and everything is nuts. Have you ever been in a ship or a boat when the waves were not smooth? Man, if you don't have everything strapped down, it goes everywhere. It's, I mean, you think it's bad when you turn the you turn a tight corner in your car and the groceries in the back seat spill all over the floor in the seat, and you're like, "Oh, great! Now I got to clean up that mess. Hope the eggs weren't at the bottom of that pile." You know? Well, it's far worse on a on, on an ocean going vessel or on a sea going vessel. The winds are contrary, so they're fighting against the winds. They don't have the wind helping them. In fact, they have the winds hindering them. So they got to strike sails. They got to stick oars in the water and 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 fight against the storm and the waves and the and, and the current and how things are all going. And then here comes Jesus walking on the sea. Like, is this a boast? Is this a brag? Or, I mean, are you? Are you making fun of our situation here, Jesus? And I know that that was not their attitude. In fact, they didn't know what to think because in verse 26 it says, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. So you take that King James English, it translates really well into when they saw Jesus walking on the sea, which they had never seen before, by the way, that had, ne that had not occurred yet in the historical narrative of the Gospels. When they saw Jesus walking on the sea, they were scared witless. They were completely, they were terrified. They had no idea what to make of that. And what they did saw, their first impression was, it's a ghost. And so they were scared to death. They were white as sheets. They had no idea what to do with this. But straightway, verse 27, Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. And I almost wonder if his voice was that calm. I don't know. Probably not, because they couldn't hear that over the winds. But maybe he projected it well. I don't know. But there was his attitude. His disciples, in a hair-pulling panic, stressed out over the storm and now terrified by the appearance of something they did not understand. And so Jesus come in, doesn't come in jacking them up, doesn't come in bonking them in the head, blasting them and, and, and all of that. He simply says, hey, no worries. What are you afraid of? Be of good cheer. It's me. It's Jesus. Calm down. Maybe he even had to take a little bit of a tone with them. We don't know. Calm down. Get a grip. There's other expressions that come along with that. We're not going to go there. 
So he says, be of good cheer, and as I be not afraid. And we know what lessons are here, even though they may be a well, this may be a well-paved road, but Jesus calms us and calms the storms of our lives and the storms of our hearts. And usually the storms of our lives are far more storms in our heart than they actually are in our lives. Because we're humans, and in the face of the divine and in the face of the infinite, we are weak and we are limited, and we have a lot of problems, and one of those problems is genuine anxiety when things get too screwy, or when things get much more screwy than we are used to handling. There, that's the way that it is. But that's one of the things that toughens us and strengthens us, doesn't it? Because once you've been through something uh, one or two times, then uh, you've learned, and you get tougher, and you get harder. I'm gonna tell on myself here with a little brief personal example, and as we draw near to our conclusion here, Let's talk about car accidents. Check this out. I'd had my driver's license for a week, one week. I was a high schooler. Had my driver's license for one week. Hopped in the car. It was uh, my parents' car. It was a 1980 or 81 Chevy Malibu. What that means is it was a big, ugly American box on four wheels with rear-wheel drive, and it was light on the back end, and it was an accident waiting to happen in inexperienced hands. No, I was not drag racing. I was not hot rodding. I wasn't doing anything of the sort. But it was a wet, rainy day, and so the pavement was wet. And I commenced to making a left turn uh, at an intersection. It was a T intersection. I turned left, and the streets were so wet, and a rear-wheel drive, as you know, is prone to fishtailing. And that thing fishtailed just like that. And I, being having had a license for one week did what all new drivers do, and that is I overcorrected and spun that thing the opposite direction, and that car spun clear around 360, no, not 360 degrees, 180 degrees, spun around backwards and rolled off the road down into a ditch. Flipped it once completely, landed right side up, shifted the frame on that thing, the car was totaled just like that, broke out one window, got a couple of dinky cuts on a knuckle or something like that. It was, as accidents go, it was pretty close to a nothing sandwich. But it was the first one I had ever had. And I got out of that car, having never been Catholic a day in my life, I got out of that car and I looked at that dead car with the windshield wiper still going and the turn signal still blinking, and I crossed myself. I've told that story before, I remember now. Because it seemed like the right thing to do, you know? It's like, I almost died! Not really. It was a low-speed accident where I rolled down into a fairly shallow ditch. It was just a few feet down, and there was, like, no injury. I don't even count the little glass nick on the, uh, in my, my knuckle. The only thing that died was the car, but, you know, <gasps> you're shook! That's the thing, right? You're so, you are absolutely rattled, man. You are shaken to the core. And if you've ever been in an accident and it was your first accident, you know. You know. But then years went by. And I got in another accident. And then years went by. I got in another one. It wasn't the same kind of accident. It wasn't the same circumstances. Just things happen. You live in large cities. Not everybody's a good driver. And sometimes you're not a good driver. Everybody gets distracted. But there was something that I'd noticed. After about two or three of those things, they lose all their shock value. <laughs> they really do. 
Unless it's, you know, extra horrific and, you know, someone actually loses their life or, or something like that. But they, they, they lose their shock value because it's something you've gone through before. And yeah, I took that and I deprecated myself and made myself out to be kind of silly. But you can apply that to so many things in your life. You go through one serious, serious illness and maybe that's not the best example to use, but I mean, you go through one serious illness and you're a little bit better conditioned maybe when you go through another one. It may still rack your body, but your mind remembers. And there's a part of you that thinks, hold on, I've done this before. I'm going to be okay. And so on and so on. The storms of our life are usually the worst in our hearts, in our minds, in our imaginations. It was a C.S. Lewis that was talking about how uh, one trick that the, that the devils can use or the devil can use, however, that was, uh, was to get a Christian completely frazzled and strung out about a dozen different possibilities all at the same time, even, without even considering that there's no way that more than one of those things could, in fact, come to pass. Doesn't matter. Anxiety knows no reason, knows no logic, stress and all of those different things. But as we go through things in life and as the Lord allows us to go through things in life and as the Lord even takes us through some things in life, it toughens us, it hardens us, it matures us on the inside. It really does. And then we get better at them and then they become less of a big deal. Go to the dentist enough times and it stops being as big a deal. You see what I'm saying? Have enough fights with your spouse and it ceases to be a galactic event that gets you thinking that a divorce is right around the corner. Okay? Things happen. Don't panic. Keep your eyes peeled because Jesus is walking right over the next wave in due time. In due time. He didn't calm the winds before them. He didn't calm the winds in the mid... uh, um, He didn't go ahead of them and smooth the waters before them. He waited until they were in the midst of that mess. And then he arrived. And and in my mind, I I picture it, you know. I I picture him kind of hands behind his back, just sort of strolling along the waves. Maybe at a good stride, but totally unbothered. I mean, completely. Maybe a little annoyed because the... It's a wet, rainy wind or something like that. We don't really know. It doesn't even say that it's a storm. It just says that uh, the sea was troubled or that uh, it was tossed with waves for the wind was contrary. So it might have even been a clear day as far as the sky was concerned. But you get the message. You get the point. No matter how bad it is, Jesus is coming. You're going to be fine. I mean that. You're going to be just fine. Well, what if it's something huge like cancer? You're going to be fine, whether he heals it or whether he takes you away from it. You're going to be fine. Don't panic. Don't panic. So he says unto them, be of good cheer, as I be not afraid. Let's just end with verse 27 where he says, be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. Well, can I be of good cheer in the midst of a storm? You certainly can. You've probably met people that have done that. You've probably met people that even in the midst of things going on around them that were absolutely bonkers, they were so confident in the presence of our Lord and in the plan of Almighty God and in His providence and His mercy that you couldn't even tell by looking at them that we're going through anything. We can be the same way. 
It can be the same way going through anything at all. It's not to say that there aren't some things that come and that might knock you flat on your back, but don't let that make you feel like you failed. You just have the same faith, the same confidence. Jesus is coming over the next wave. Even if that wave is a month away, Jesus is coming. I'm going to be fine. Even if I'm knocked down and I'm dizzy and I can't, if, if it's just stars and Tweety Birds around my head, just like in the old cartoons, I'm going to be fine because Jesus is going to help me. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash giving.